Hi, I'm Kelly Cervantes, and this is Seizing Life, a bi-weekly podcast produced by Cure Epilepsy. This week on Seizing Life, we present a special episode recorded live this past November at Epilepsy Awareness Day at Disneyland. Epilepsy advocate, mother, and previous podcast guest, Kate Neal Cooper, joined me for a discussion on advocating for your child's epilepsy care, an area in which, unfortunately, Kate and I have a great deal of personal experience. We spoke about our challenges in navigating our respective daughter's care and treatment. We offered advice in several areas, including finding the right physician, doing research, asking for support, and dealing with schools and insurance companies. So, with acknowledgement and respect to all of the Papa Bears out there who also advocate for their children, here is Unleashing Your Inner Mama Bear. Thank you all for coming out today, I am sure. I know, I see Mama Bears and uh, Papa Bears in the room too, for that matter. Um, Having a child with a complex diagnosis brings something out of us that I don't think any of us knew existed within us. And all of a sudden we are thrust into this world and having to learn an entirely new vocabulary. And Mm -hmm. it can feel, I know I felt in the beginning very isolated and alone and confused. And um, it was actually, my daughter was diagnosed with epilepsy the exact same week that my husband um, landed the role of Hamilton. He did it for uh, a month or so on Broadway and then we transferred to Chicago. And I was like, Chicago, Adelaide had just been diagnosed with epilepsy. I worked at a restaurant selling and coordinating events and they had, um, I had done an event for this organization called Cure Epilepsy. Mm -hmm. And I remembered that they were in Chicago and one of my coworkers was like, you should reach out to them. You're moving to Chicago. They're based in Chicago. And so I did. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm terrified. Can you please connect me with a mom who knows what they're doing? And the folks at Cure actually connected me with Kate. So we have sort of had back and forth email exchanges for, um, well, Adelaide would have just turned seven, so probably going on six years now. Um, Mm -hmm. Kate was my mama bear teacher i forgot that i was the fir- i've forgotten that i was the first person you talked to yes i hope i said helpful things you did you did i feel like i went back to that email so many times um you know what advice do you have in those early days i, I imagine that quite a few of you have gotten through some of those early days but what is the advice that you give to sort of the newly diagnosed family and When I say newly diagnosed, I think um, within the first few years, because I think there's, it's a long learning curve. You think after like maybe six months that you've got this figured out, but it's like, it takes a few years to like really get your ducks in a row. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think in the very beginning, the most important thing is finding a clinician who can be your partner. And so for us, what that came down to, you know, is who treats us like a partner? You know, who's talking to us like we're their equal? Who's listening to our concerns? Who's um, pointing us in a direction um, with constructive ideas we hadn't thought about? 
So I think from the very start, it's identifying that medical partner. Mm -hmm. um, and that's somebody who treats you like they're equal. So and I think that can take, that can take a few years. I know we went through at least three doctors before, epileptologists, before we found the one where I was like, okay. I mean, we were over a year into the journey before I was like, okay, this is, this is our guy. And I, I took Adelaide all over the country to try and find that doctor. We ended up finding him in Chicago where we lived, mm -hmm. um, which was great, but it, you know, it is, it's tough. And I think, you know, we were talking earlier and I don't know how many times I have moms, dads reach out to me, grandparents, and they're like, you know, my kid had a seizure and now it's gonna take three months to get in to see the doctor or six or nine. <laughs> and, you know, I always say, you know, make the appointment with that doctor, but you know, there's hopefully there's more than one doctor, more than one hospital, more than one care center. And that goes, I, I will always wanna give that advice. Epileptologists, yes, like try and get in somewhere else. Even if you think that this is the best place, try somewhere else just to get in somewhere and keep that other appointment because get second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth appointment, you know, you, you talk about they all tell you something different, and, right. but hopefully right. eventually one of them says something <clears throat> that, that fits. But I also found that to be true. Um, unfortunately, epilepsy doesn't like to come alone. It likes to tag along with other issues, be them mental health issues or my daughter had mast cell issues and pulmonary issues. And, um, you know, there's, so, you know, that works across the board. Right. I think, you know, find your team, find the right doctor, find the doctors who can work together because, oh my God, it's exhausting being the quarterback yeah. and having to manage all those specialists. If you can find specialists who are willing to work together outside of you and to loop you in and like that, that to me was, when we found an allergist and an epileptologist that could work together on a treatment plan that elongated my daughter's life by at least a year. Mm -hmm. So you found your doctor, <laughs> you <laughs> found your team. It, it could have taken years and years. Um, you know, I've heard so many horror stories over the year, but hope, hopefully you find that person that you can trust that responds to you and and you know a response time should be within 24 hours you know mm -hmm. i know that that maybe is not the way that it is across the board but if you call and you shouldn't be afraid to call kate yeah. was saying that she we were talking earlier and she was saying that she can just still has the phone number memorized mm -hmm. but on call i haven't called it in years but their job is to answer my call and so if i need it i call it yeah yeah and so never be afraid to call, never be afraid to ask those questions. There is no such thing as a stupid question. Um, and it's sort of along with that goes, unfortunately, we like to place a lot of trust and hope in these medical practitioners and clinicians. And when we say that you found the right doctor and they feel like the right person and it's the right team, um, that doesn't mean that they have all the answers. And unfortunately, in order to get our children or ourselves the best care, there's a lot of education that we have to do for ourselves. Um, I, I've found over the years, we just, we can't rely on the medical professionals. Mm -hmm. 
Um, mm -hmm. Kate, what kind of research did you do to try and, or what didn't you uh, do? There were so many different, <laughs> there were so many different uh, adventures in research in the Cooper household. Um, you know, one of the things that I found that I just want to recognize, because I'm, I'm sure a lot of people in this room feel this, is, you know, I tackled epilepsy in the 17 years that my daughter had seizures. And in that time, she had about 15,000 seizures by our count um, on medication the whole time, which just never could get full control. Um, but I found that I would throw myself into something like, yes, we're doing the ketogenic diet. And, you know, she has to be hospitalized. I have to learn this. I have to do this. We tried that for three months. That didn't work. And it, I was so emotionally exhausted that I would have to take a break. And maybe for six months, I did nothing. I mean, we were just doing whatever medication they were giving us. It wasn't working. And I was just recovering from that effort. And so I really want to recognize, like, this is exhausting work, you know? So, and do not beat yourself up when you think, you know, I need a little time out after that big effort, and then I'm going to feel better, and then I'm going to come back, and I'm going to try the next thing. But you cannot do this 24 hours a day for, you know, a lifetime. It's just exhausting. So, you know, take a break, take a breather, and then go back out there. So I mentioned the ketogenic diet. That was one where I did a lot of research, um, found the Charlie Foundation that I saw us here today was a game changer to have their help, you know, just did a ton of research about how that food situation would work. And, and again, we had a great relationship with our uh, epileptologist at the time, but when I called him to say, he had always said, no, no, you don't want to do that. It's so much work. It's so much work. And I kept listening. And finally, I remember calling him, and I remember exactly where I was sitting. And I said, I want to do the ketogenic diet, and you're going to tell me it's too much work. And when you say that to me, what I hear is, I don't understand what you're going through. And I said, so you can tell me where you would like me to consider admitting her, and we're admitting her. And he was like, fair enough. Here are the two places I'd like you to look at. But I just needed him to know, you know, um, you have no idea what it's like to be me. I get that you're a doctor. I get that you see this. The very first time Virginia was in the hospital, she was having seizures every seven minutes, out of the blue. Just this perfectly healthy baby started having seizures. And I was waiting and waiting for the doctor to come. And he came and he, she was thrashing around in the crib having a seizure and he just kept talking. And I said, excuse me, excuse me, will you please stop for a second? Like, I mean, her head's hitting the metal bars. And he said, oh, don't worry, I live in this world. And I said, no, you don't. You are visiting. I now live in this world and I need you to stop talking for a minute. Granted, I mean, needless to say, we were not with him for very long. <laughs> we were not friends. We did not see eye to eye. But the point of that, we're the ones who live in this world. And we're the ones who have to do the research, at least to get started. I'm not saying I know what an epileptologist knows. Um, but I also don't like being spoken down to. So between the ketogenic diet, you know, I, I did a ton of research. That did not work. But, you know, we all just want to be able to say at the end of the day, I did everything I could. Mm -hmm. Right? That's our job. I just did everything I could. Whatever my child's potential is, I did everything I could to help them live up to that potential. Um, when, you know, we eventually went the brain surgery route. I mean, we tried when she was eight and it, we couldn't localize a uh, focal point, so we couldn't do it. We revisited it in her teenage years. And um, the first level four epilepsy center we went to said it's just not possible. They did an SEEG and everything, which is an invasive diagnostic surgery. They said, we can't find it. Um, but they were very dismissive of my follow-up questions. And I just really felt like you are missing something. Like these seizures look the same every time. Doesn't that mean they're coming from the same place? You know, um, sure enough, we went to another place a few months later. And a few months after that, she had brain surgery and never had another seizure. 
I mean, it's not all sweetness and light. You know, there are a lot of problems after you have 16 years of seizures, but I would not have known to push that hard if I had not been doing mm -hmm. the research. Hi, this is Brandon from Cure Epilepsy. Did you know that 30% of those diagnosed with epilepsy do not respond to current medications? That is why for over 20 years, Cure Epilepsy has been dedicated to funding patient-focused research to find a cure for epilepsy. Learn more about our mission and our research by visiting cureepilepsy.org. Now back to Seizing Life. You know, to, to that angle, it, it takes a moment to find your feet and your confidence in those rooms with the doctors. And, you know, you'll hear, I mean, I don't know, I, if I had a dime for every time someone told me, well, you know your child best. And I, I think, you know, there's a lot of pressure in that statement. Mm -hmm. It's true. Mm -hmm. No one knew Adelaide better than I did. Um, however, the pressure that comes with that, with knowing that you're the one who knows them best, it's heavy. This, the, it's work, it's heavy, mm -hmm. it's a lot. And I think it's important to recognize that and cut ourselves some slack. We have to have the fight and we have to go toe to toe. And I think one of the ways that I found it was easier to be able to do that was when I spoke in their lingo. Mm -hmm. When I talked the, in the medical legalese, the medicalese, if you will, <laughs> you know, all of those words, you know, febrile instead of fever or uh, secretions instead of spit, all of those, it's silly, but you listen to the terminology you use and when you spit that back out at them, um, they respect you more because you're talking their language. Sort of circling back as I'm thinking about it, I wanted to touch on the research piece and, and knowing all there is to know. I mean, obviously everyone is here and that is huge, but you know, doing, you don't know what you don't know. Um, you know, I'm thinking about like the, the MEG that mm -hmm. Virginia had yeah. and that was how they figured out, but there's only 17 of these machines in the country. So not every, this isn't an MRI. Not everyone has, not every hospital has one. So you don't even know what tools are out there that you can request unless you're doing the research to figure that piece out. So, you know, whether that is, you know, joining the Facebook mom groups, sometimes they can be a little dramatic and challenging, but there can be some good information in there, but finding the, the podcasts, seizing life, um, <laughs> You know, find the, the sources of information where you can go, because sometimes you do have to advocate. If you don't, if your child isn't seen at a hospital that has that equipment, then your specialist is not going to potentially order it. You know, do you, you know, the, a lot of us have had genetic testing done, but, you know, do you know how frequently you can get it done? Have, you know, you've had whole exome sequencing, but have you had whole genome sequencing? And there's all of these different levels and layers to all of these tests. And you have to ask for a lot of it. And if you don't know what to ask for, then you're, you know, you're taking a step back. And then not only do you have to ask for it, you have to fight for it because <laughs> you may get dismissed and told that 
that is not necessary, in which case, go find someone else who will give it to you mm -hmm. with a la, you know, the ketogenic diet or the surgery or whatever it is. Exactly. Um, you know, we can't take no for an answer and that is exhausting. Yeah. Yeah, Virginia, so we, we ended up with the MEG through a research study. She was, you know, we, we were pursuing yet another hospital, yet another expert, and they said we have these various studies going on that she might benefit from. Um, and I'm just a huge believer in participating in research because it benefits all of us, right? Um, and so we said yes to it, and that's ultimately how they were able to figure out where her seizures were coming from and then eventually to operate. There is a ton of amazing research going on, and there are studies and trials being done. If you go to the Cure Epilepsy website, there is a link where you can go and see all the different like medical trials, medication trials that are going on, different things that are coming down the pipeline. Um, the research is amazing, but once it gets to the patient phase, they need patients to test it. So look into that, seek that out, find out what's going on. Um, and those can be incredible resources and it helps push science forward for all of our families, which is inspiring and incredible. And I would also say if you looked at something three to five years ago, uh, look at it again. Yes. Bring it up again, find out what's going on, have things changed and you know now like you were talking about with the surgery you know yeah. like yeah we were told on multiple occasions that our daughter was not a candidate for surgery or that the surgery was going to involve a craniotomy it was going to be incredibly invasive and kelly and i've laughed about this before but when my daughter finally had her surgery she had two tiny holes drilled right here and i was telling kelly we've had more stitches at a birthday party <laughs> like it was it was nothing i mean again not that not everyone qualifies but it was so different than what we had been told for so so long yeah i mean two tiny little stitches wow. I mean, i could not stop staring at them when she came out and that was it um and again it was 16 years that was not it i'm oversimplifying but but it was not the surgery that had been described to us when we started going down that path. Everything had changed in just a matter of a few years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, switching gears a little bit um, to sort of more personal, social, educational. Um, my daughter passed away at four, so we did not reach school age. But I've spoken to so many parents over the years who have been through this. Um, and I can, I can, I'll speak to it a little later in, in regards to my son who was around for all of it. But um, what was your experience with Virginia in school and managing her epilepsy in an educational environment? Yeah, it, it was really interesting. Um, you know, we all know epilepsy is this tragically underfunded disease and teachers know almost nothing about it. Um, and so what I ended up doing as a parent was educating teachers. So I built um, a presentation deck, it's in Keynote, but I can export it to any format. Anyone who needs it, I will send it to you. And the whole first half is just educating them about epilepsy in general. You know, they don't understand that it's a spectrum disease. They don't understand all the different ways that seizures can physically manifest. Um, they don't understand how underfunded it is. So, you know, the entire, what I would do is basically, you know, kindergarten through six, she's got one teacher. I would meet with that one teacher and explain. Although I, I say that, actually, we would get the music teacher, the gym teacher, 
And I would go there during the first week or so of school. After school, I would present it, answer questions. So the first half was epilepsy in general. And then the second half was my daughter specifically. Here's what Virginia's seizures looks like. You know, she has them every night between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. She may be very tired. You know, we're not asking for special treatment, but we want you to know where we're coming from. You do not need to call 911. Please don't call an ambulance. <laughs> you don't even really need to call me. You know, but just educating them about what to expect, showing them videos of people having seizures. Um, that went a really long way. You know, they, first of all, they realized how little they knew. Um, but I also felt like um, after that, I would have teachers call me and say, there's this kid in my class that we thought had, had ADHD, and now I'm realizing I think he's having those absent seizures. Or, you know, I met a woman at a cocktail party the other day, and her kid's having seizures, and they can't get a doctor appointment. Can she call you? You know, so the, doing that outreach to the teachers proactively really, really helped. Um, and we also always did the... Um, the seizure plan, you know, it's all on one page, here's what to do. Mm -hmm. Because generally we find that people don't know what to do when someone has a seizure. Um, and they either do something wrong and stick something in their mouth or they call an ambulance when you don't need an ambulance. So educating them about what the steps really are. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of, you know, socially, I had to bring a few parents into our confidences. You know, when she was little, I just told everybody whatever I wanted, but once she was 13, you know, it was her story to tell. And with her permission, I would say, you know, you need this person as your ally. And can I tell this mom or this dad that you're spending the night with what's going to happen? Yeah. Um, but it gets really hard in the teenage years. I mean, really hard. Yeah. What I can speak to in terms of like the educational and the social, um, we did a lot of education in my son's class because siblings are drastically affected by this, right? Mm -hmm. Like they... Unfortunately, for four years of my son's life, he had to sort of take the backseat to his sister's life mm -hmm. because it was emergency after emergency, hospitalization after hospitalization. And it would be very difficult for him to have friends come over to the house. There was medical equipment or if she was having a seizure. And so what we found the best way that we could support him uh, is I would have a conversation with his teacher, um, just request to have the phone call. I would have a phone call or go in person. E um, it's too long to email. Um, <laughs> and I would give them a heads up that um, I would, I needed their phone number because I would text them and let them know if someone else was going to be picking Jackson up from school that day, if Adelaide was rushed to the hospital and I needed to have someone else step in. Um, so I had always had a rapport with his teachers in regards to that. And then I would also request that we could come in to the classroom and we would bring Adelaide with us and we would talk to the kids in his classes. We did this in kindergarten, first and second grade. And we would talk to them about epilepsy and about seizures and her various equipment. She had a G-tube, but she eventually got a VNS. Um, we'd talk to them about what an EEG was, all in like very kid-friendly terms. But the amazing thing about it is then when the kids, when my son's friends saw Adelaide when at pickup, they would come over and they would say hi to her and they understood that she wasn't verbal. They understood that she wasn't mobile and they accepted her for who she was. And because they accepted her, my son then felt more accepted also. 
because no one was whispering or saying anything negative to him about his sister or behind his back about his sister. They had been informed and that's all children need. They need to be taught empathy and they need to be informed on what is going on in the world around them. And I had so many parents outside come and thank me for doing that. And, but it was really, it was, it was all for Jackson. And that was just so incredibly beneficial. And the cool thing is now is that even after his sister has passed away, he always likes on, you know, an epi one of the many epilepsy awareness days in a year, he <laughs> asks to talk to his teacher and we'll um, do a little presentation still hmm. about epilepsy. That's awesome. Because he wants people to still know about it. And mm -hmm. this is still a huge part of his life. And he's still a part of this community. And um, so I think that that, recognizing that this, we have a, a lot of times we have more than one child in mm -hmm. our family mm -hmm. and there may be the one child that has the epilepsy, but the entire family is impacted. Um, another thing that um, I did for my son is that he has been in therapy since he was six years old. Um, just having that person to talk to um, who's not my husband or I was mm -hmm. incredibly beneficial for him. Um, because he did, he got angry um, that we weren't always around and that I, he never knew who was going to pick him up from school. Um, and, and so having that outlet for him was incredibly beneficial as well. Um, so, you know, I think that, that all of that, there can be a lot of pressure that we put on ourselves when we're caring for our child with epilepsy. But... There are all of these other moving pieces in our lives as well and taking a breath and stepping back and seeing what we can do for the grander picture is going to help us down the road. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. It's going to help, you know, I, I feel like my son is more emotionally balanced now than he probably would have been had we not had him in therapy earlier. Um, he was able to handle his sister's passing and, and all of those things just, I mean, still sucked, um, but a little smoother and mm -hmm. a little healthier mm -hmm. um, because we don't get to just be the parent to yeah. the child with epilepsy. Yeah, that's great. It's a whole family thing. <clears throat> um, all right. What do we have next? Uh, insurance. <laughs> Everybody's favorite. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Do you have any fun insurance stories? Kate? You know, we, we didn't have too many nightmares. Um, just a couple of thoughts on insurance in general. Um, don't assume that something isn't covered. You know, I mean, again, for our daughter's ultimate brain surgery, we, we made, that was three separate, well, sort of three separate out-of-state trips. And I had no idea, you know, I thought, is this even possible? I was shocked to learn, oh, they're in network. We're in Virginia, they're in Texas, but somehow they're in network. So don't assume, don't give up before you even check. Mm -hmm. so it might be covered. Um, then the second thing is when something gets denied, that is don't ever take no for an answer. Like just resubmit that puppy. Mm -hmm. you know, like There's never like, oh, that's nice. Okay, do it again. Like, yeah. And it could be, you could change nothing and the next time they accept it. Just, yeah, you know, and again, I, you know, I'm not advocating anything illegal. They just sometimes it isn't coded correctly. Sometimes they're not looking at it. Sometimes the doctor forgot some weird piece of documentation. Find out why it was denied. Talk to your clinical coordinator and find out what they can do to resubmit. Mm 
Mm -hmm. um, you know, we can't, you know, we can't ignore the reality of the limitations of insurance, but make sure they're real before you assume that they exist. Um, Request that doctor to doctor call. Yes. A lot yeah. of insurance companies, you know, they may deny you the first time. And then if you call the insurance company, you can request to talk to one of their medical professionals and your doctor can talk to one of the insurance company doctors and they can have the verbal conversation explaining why this is necessary. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times you can get a lot further going that route also. Um, and that goes for pharmaceutical coverage too. Absolutely. Because they're like, oh, well, this is also an epilepsy drug. And you're like, oh, <laughs> that ain't gonna work. You know, they, they think you can just change drugs or just, uh -huh. or the generic may not be the same as that, you know, the same thing it, that mm -hmm. it applies to pharmaceuticals, procedures, everything. Yeah. Um, and then also with, you know, with these complicated cases where you have to travel out of state, again, think about the fact that um, if your, uh, if the service you're looking for is not available in your network, they might have to cover it because it isn't available in your network. Mm -hmm. So again, that's another thing. And, and most of these hospitals have clinical, I mean, you, many of you probably already know this, but they have clinical coordinators who can help you figure that out, um, how to present the case, how to explain it, yeah. um, and provide the documentation you need to show. Like, we have this thing that your hospital doesn't, yeah. and in fact, no one in your network does, so you need to cover yeah. Adelaide or Virginia going to get this. Well, and I'll, as you're talking about, like, all of the, find out what supports your hospital does have because I think you'd be surprised how much support exists that you may not even be aware of. So, you know, we had become frequent flyer members at the hospital and um, the social worker came in and she was like, do you know that we can help you get home nursing? And I was like, oh, well, I didn't, I was full-time taking care of Adelaide at home. And I was like, well, we don't need home nursing. And she was like, I don't need a break. <laughs> she was like, yes, you do, mama, you do. And I was like, well, I don't even know if we qualify. And she sat there and, and you know, even though she was the social work um, in the hospital, she helped me even once we were discharged to help get home nursing in our home, walking me through. We were denied the first time which was insanity, or I think we were given 10 hours, and I was like, awesome. Um, then she helped us refile it, and we ended up getting 40 hours of home nursing a week, which was life-changing. You can take a shower. I got to shower. Yeah. I'm Have like, a meal. 40 hours a week, I mean, that's eight hours a day. Now, you know, that's still, how many hours are so it's still 16 hours that I'm on duty. Um, and she had seizures round the clock. Mm -hmm. I mean, she did not care what time it was. Mm -hmm. And she, with her breathing issue, I mean, like, so it was a round the clock job. But for eight hours, I could go to my son's baseball game mm -hmm. or go to a parent-teacher conference or, you know. And so those things make a huge difference. So, you know, ask what services are available, the care coordinators, the social workers can also help you fight for the drugs. I, my daughter needed a medication and our insurance had decided that um, only children under the age of two needed this particular medication and she was two and a half. And I was like, well, <laughs> because the drug was for infantile spasms and she was no longer an infant. 
And I was like, well, guess what? She still has infantile spasms. <laughs> I don't, she has hips arrhythmia. I don't care what you want to call it or how old she is. And they helped us fight to get it. And so reach out to the hospital, call, you know, your, to your epileptologist, find out what additional services are there. And maybe you don't need them now, but maybe you'll need them down the road. And just knowing that having those, those phone numbers in your back pocket, those email addresses, um, so that they are accessible to you. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And sort of thinking about what was your community and social supports? Ah, that's like? a great question. And I haven't thought about that in a while. Um, we live in a, a great little walkable neighborhood where all the kids kind of hung out together and we all went to the same park. And, um, you know, and we were friends with those people before Virginia was diagnosed. So there, we had a ton of support. And in thinking about this, I'm going back to what you were saying about, um, you were talking about how hard this work mm -hmm. is and how we have to admit that it's work. And, and one of the things that, um, that I've found along those lines is people tend to lionize, like, mm -hmm. oh, you're so amazing. Oh, you're so amazing. And it makes it, it can, like you said, make it very hard to ask for help. And what we found really helpful is in the moments when we weren't in crisis or as we felt a crisis approaching, we started making a list of the stuff that we need, needed help with. So one point in time that was like returning all these Netflix discs, which is not a thing anymore. So that's taken care of. <laughs> um, yay cloud. But, um, you know, it was also like the dog has to be walked. And if we're in the hospital, who's walking the dog? Mm. Or, you know, we have these other children. Ned needs to be picked up. Gilbert needs to be picked up. So we started just making a list because in that moment when someone offered help, I was like, I, I can't think of anything. No, no. In the moment, you're in the moment in you survival. can't think of it. So we just had lists and people want to help you. They feel so helpless. And so we kept a list That's and really we smart. said we, we actually changed our door so that it was a push code. So we didn't have to hand out keys. I mean, there were a lot of people in Richmond, Virginia with the key to our house. So we finally just like put the door code up um, and we would say, yeah, you know what? Actually, we're still waiting for the neurologist on call we haven't the dog hasn't been fed can you please go feed her walker um the boys would love to go to a movie you know could you take them to a movie yeah. um so we just started keeping a list where we could ask for help and it made it so much easier the other thing we found was um we never did a carrying bridge or anything but we would do a mass email um at the beginning of a surgery situation so it would just sort of set people's expectations so i didn't have to um I wouldn't have to say the same thing to 25 different people. I would mm -hmm. kind of pick who the people were who needed to know. Here's an email. And then I often, when we were doing big things like surgery, I had a designated, I had like a chief of communications. Oh. Uh, it was my brother, yes. And so I would communicate with just him. And then um, he would communicate with the rest of the family. Because, again, you know, you talk about how it affects Jackson. It's also, uh, you know, my parents. If I had to call my parents after surgery and say, well, she has a brain bleed, we're going to ICU. Well, then they were freaking out. Then I was caring for them when I really needed to be focused on me and my kid. My brother was a lot more even keeled. I mean, he, it wasn't that he wasn't concerned, but I would let him have that uncomfortable conversation with my parents. I had enough to deal with. Mm -hmm. So I had this appointed little chief of staff situation and I would just send him one text um, and, and I instructed everybody, Jim will be communicating with you. I will not be able to answer your messages. I appreciate the love and concern, but we are going to be 100% focused on Virginia because yeah. you can't, it's exhausting. Yeah. Um, that worked really well for us. Yeah. That was really helpful. I had a list of 
moms in the community that I could reach out to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then there was sort of one who would rally the troops. So I could like reach out to her when we needed something. And then she would disseminate, yeah. she would send out a text to like yeah. the mom text chat and say, okay, they need X, Y, and Z. And someone would be like, okay, I can take Jackson here or there. We can take care of the dog. And um, yeah, you need a bat signal. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like, but it, you know, it's, you have to, you, we cannot do this alone. And don't ever, and I didn't have family around. Um, so we didn't have a family support. So we had to make friends quick. <laughs> and I was like, and it, you know, really sexy and cool to be friends with Hamilton, but guess what? We're going to ask you for a crap load of favors <laughs> and we're not going to pay them back. <laughs> I will get you tickets to see Hamilton and that is about all I can offer you. Um, no, but I, but you do, you have to just ask for help and know that people love you and they're willing to help you and you have to suck up your pride. And that was really hard for me because I've always been sort of headstrong and independent and I can do this. And um, I learned very quickly that I couldn't by myself. That, that that just wasn't going to be an option. And so you have to, you have to, you have to ask for help. You mm -hmm. just do. This can feel isolating, mm -hmm. but you are unfortunately, fortunately, not alone. You know, there's an entire conference of us who are going through something similar. And take take hope in that, take heart in that, that there is someone else who has gone through this before. And there are people that you can reach out to. There are organizations that can help you. That, you know, go on social media, find those advocates, reach out to them. I respond to DMs. Um, <laughs> you, know, you know, find the people who can help and ask the questions. And the, it's a pretty <clears throat> fabulous community. I will never forget. Um, so Susan Axelrod founded Cure Epilepsy. Her husband is David. And one of the very first times that we met him, he came up to my husband and he said, I am so terribly sorry that you are a part of this club, but we are so happy to have you here. And I will never forget that because it is a really crappy club to be a part of, but I have never met more amazing people than I have as um, came with my membership card. So um, thank you guys so much for coming and listening and wishing Anything. you all the best. Thank you to Kate Neal Cooper for sharing her experiences and advice. And thank you to all who attended our podcast recording at Epilepsy Awareness Day at Disneyland. For 25 years, Cure Epilepsy has been dedicated to funding patient-focused research with the goal of finding a cure for epilepsy. If you would like to help us achieve that goal, please visit cureepilepsy.org forward slash donate. Cure Epilepsy. Inspiring hope and delivering impact. Thank you. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Cure Epilepsy. The information contained herein is provided for general information only and does not offer medical advice or recommendations. Individuals should not rely on this information as a substitute for consultations with qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with individual medical conditions and needs. Cure Epilepsy strongly recommends that care and treatment decisions related to epilepsy and any other medical conditions be made in consultation with a patient's physician or other qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with the individual's specific health situation.